Uh, I hope you have had a great day. Uh, I've had a great day uh, getting to know you guys, sitting down, chatting with you. Uh, We finished our talk last night by exploring three challenges uh, that have come against the doctrine of the Trinity over the last few hundred years. Those challenges are that it's not in the Bible, it doesn't make sense, and it's not practical. Well, in this talk uh, tonight, we are going to tackle that first challenge that says the Trinity isn't in the Bible. Uh, This challenge says that the doctrine was only invented hundreds of years after the Bible, the birth of Christianity, that it's really something that's been added on to the Bible. Maybe it's all just Greek philosophy or something. Um, But let me ask you, if you had to explain the Trinity using only the Bible, how would you do it? Uh, Where would you start? What would be some of the key passages that you would use? How would you do it? Um, My prayer, my aim for us in this talk is that all of us would come away with the firm conviction that yes, the doctrine of the Trinity is biblical and that we will all see it for ourselves in the Bible. Uh, In particular, uh, when we get to the end of this talk, um, I want to show you how the Bible actually leads us to say those three things that we introduced uh, last night. Uh, That there is one God, and that the Father, Son, and Spirit are each identified with that one God, and that they are distinguished by the relations between them. Um, Hopefully, we're going to see that in the Bible. Uh, But before we jump in, uh, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word, we pray that you would please speak to us and reveal yourself as you really are. Um, As we seek your face, show us who you are. Um, As we do this, uh, we we pray, please focus our minds, uh, soften our hearts that we might receive your word in faith. Uh, And we pray it in your Son's name, Jesus. Amen. Well, um, before we get to the Bible, uh, I actually want to start by exploring what kind of expectations we should have when it comes to finding the Trinity in the Bible. Because if we come expecting to see something that's not actually there, then we're ultimately going to be confused and disappointed and we'll go away thinking, well, it's not there in the Bible. So what should we expect to find in the Bible? Well, put simply, if we expect to find a formal statement like the Athanasian Creed uh, in the Bible, uh, we're going to be disappointed. Um, Why? Because the Bible is not a theological textbook written in a vacuum. It doesn't give us formal statements of doctrines. Um, Everything in the Bible was written to a particular people at a particular time uh, to address particular circumstances. Um, Which is not to say that there's no doctrine in the Bible. The Bible is actually full of doctrine um, across a whole range of topics. But it's not given to us in formal abstract statements. What we get is we get little fragments or little snippets of doctrines 
as they become relevant to particular people. Uh, And so the Ephesians, they didn't need to hear the same thing as the Galatians, who didn't need to hear the same thing as the church in Rome. Uh, Doctrine is always contextual. And so what we actually need to do is we need to collect all these different fragments of doctrines, reading each of them in their own context, before assembling them together into some kind of formal statement. What do we actually believe? Uh, And that's true for the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, So have a look in your books there. I've got a little helpful observation by B.B. Warfield. Um, So if you've got your booklet there, he says this, The doctrine of the Trinity is given to us in Scripture, not in formulated definition, but in fragmentary allusions. When we assemble the disjecta membra, which is scattered parts, into their organic unity, when we put it all together, we are not passing from Scripture but entering more thoroughly into the meaning of Scripture. So what's he saying there? What he's saying is there's no formal doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible, because that's not how the Bible works. (laughs) But what we do have is fragmentary allusions, as he calls it, uh, and what we're doing when we come to the Bible is we're collecting them and putting them together, trying to make sense of them. And when we do that, we're not passing from Scripture but entering into its meaning more thoroughly. Um, Now, what does that mean for us? It means that we can't just look at a single verse or even just a single chapter. Um, If what we're doing is collecting fragmentary pieces, we actually need to move across the whole Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments. Um, So just imagine someone panning for gold in a river. You know, you go and shake the thing. Um, If you just keep sitting in the same spot, shaking the thing, you're not going to get a lot of gold. What you need to do is you need to move up and down the river, continually sifting for gold, uh, rather than just doing the same tiny bit. Uh, In the same way, we're going to need to go um, up and down the Bible if we're going to sift out the gold when it comes to the Trinity. Um, But that leads to a second question, which is, what should we expect to find in the Old Testament? Um, Because, as we saw last night, um, the Bible doesn't tell us everything all in one go. It's an unfolding story, a revelation. We saw that with the language of mystery. Uh, The Bible speaks about something being previously hidden, but now revealed. And that means we shouldn't expect the Old Testament to give us a revelation of God's triunity with the same clarity and explicitness as we find it in the New. But on the flip side, that doesn't mean that there is nothing for us to learn from the Old Testament. There's actually heaps there. Um, Have a look at what Herman Bavinck says. He's actually my favourite theologian. Um, This is why he says... The Old Testament conveys only an inexplicit indication of God's Trinitarian existence. It is the first part of the record of the gradually unfolding doctrine of the Trinity. Still, though, he says, the Old Testament contains 
not just in a few isolated texts, but especially in the organism of its revelation as a whole, components that are of the highest significance for the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I think what he's saying there is really interesting, because he starts by saying, yeah, the Old Testament, it only gives us an inexplicit, um, unfolding view of God's triunity. And so you might expect him to say, well, we should just spend all of our time in the New Testament, because that's where everything is clearer. But that's not what he says. He actually says the Old Testament contains things that are of the highest significance for the doctrine of the Trinity. So, what's going on here? Um, Let me ask you this. If you had to explain who the bad guy is in the first Harry Potter book, how would you do it? Um, Just last year, I read all the Harry Potter books for the first time. Wonderful experience. Um, But one of the big mysteries in the first book is about which professor is out to get Harry. And when you first read the story, all the clues seem to point to Snape. Um, But then you get to the end, and the big twist is that it is, spoiler alert, Professor Quirrell. Now, if if you had to explain who the bad guy is in that book, you could say, well, we really only know who the bad guy is at the end. And so the last chapter is really the only chapter that you need to tell you about the bad guy. But that would be a mistake. Because um, one of the things that struck me reading the book, I know the movies well, I know Krill's the bad guy, um, but one, reading the books, one of the things that struck me was how many clues there were right from the very beginning pointing to Quirrell the whole way through. And actually, every chapter is telling you a whole lot about who the bad guy is. We just missed it the first time because we didn't know who to look for. Knowing how the story ends can help you appreciate all the clues that you missed the first time round. Um, The Old Testament is full of clues pointing us to the doctrine of the Trinity. And if we limit ourselves only to the last chapter, the New Testament, we actually sell ourselves short and miss the richness of the unfolding story. But on the flip side, we can really only appreciate all those clues when we know how the story ends, who to look for. So, how does the story end when it comes to the Trinity? Well, when we come to the New Testament, uh, what we find is that there are three names repeated again and again. Uh, Jesus actually gives us the three names in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. He says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus gives us three names, Father, Son, um, who we'll also see called the Word and the Spirit. And it's these three names that unlock the clues in the Old Testament. They tell us who to look for. Uh, This will become important when we get to some clues. So, with that said, let's get stuck into the Bible. Uh, We're going to start with the Old Testament, and we're going to look for some clues about these three. And where I want to start is actually by building up a bit of a snapshot 
of the ancient Israelite worldview, the biblical worldview. Uh, We won't take too long, but this is going to form the foundation of what we're going to build on when we look at the Bible. Uh, The first piece of the ancient Israelite worldview is that there is only one God. Uh, The Old Testament is pervasively monotheistic. It says there aren't any other gods aside from the God of Israel. Uh, This kind of, it drips off every single page. Um, We could go to any number of passages, uh, but I'm going to give you one absolutely crystal clear statement. Uh, It comes from Isaiah 44, you can see it there. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. There is no other God besides the God of Israel. And one implication of this is that God is fundamentally distinct from anything else. He is distinct from the world. Um, He is the creator. Everything else is the creation. Um, The world is not an extension of God. It's not an emanation of God. It's not a part of God. There's a fundamental distinction there. Creator, creation. Uh, You can see that at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Um, Have a look at what Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman says about this. He says, The most fundamental affirmation of Genesis 1 is that God created all things, including humans. God is creator and we are creatures. The creator-creature distinction seems obvious, but is often forgotten to our detriment. This distinction between creator and creation, it's fundamental to the ancient Israelite worldview, biblical worldview. Um, And it's worth saying, this this might seem obvious to us, but this worldview was unparalleled in the ancient world. No other culture shared the same worldview as Israel. Um, Every other culture in what we call the ancient Near East, so kind of around Israel, they were all polytheistic. They believed in many gods. But they also believed that the world was just an extension of the gods. And so they believed that nature was actually just a personification of the gods. So you might have heard of the Egyptian sun god, Ra, or the Babylonian fertility god, Baal, or even the water god, Asherah. Um, Listen to how Bible commentator uh, John Currid describes that kind of a worldview. He says, In regard to the very nature of the Creator, all societies of the ancient Near East, save the Hebrews, were polytheists. The gods themselves were imminent, that is, personified in various powers and elements of the universe. These gods were not omnipotent, but were restricted in power to the capacity of the natural elements they personified. Um, Can you see how different this is to the ancient Israelite worldview, which says there is only one God and He is fundamentally distinct 
from creation. But the final piece of the Israelite worldview is actually around the place of humanity, us. Um, See, in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, um, humans were actually thought to be made from the remains of dead gods uh, in order to be the slaves of the gods. Um, So, little excerpt, this is very typical ancient Near East. Um, We've got the Enuma Elish. Here's a little snippet. From his Kingu's blood, that's a god, he, Ea, another god, created mankind on whom he imposed the service of the gods and set the gods free. The Bible presents us with a radically different worldview when it comes to the place of humanity. You might be glad to know that you are not made from the remains of a dead god. Uh, We are actually made in the image of God. And he placed us in a position of honour and dominion over creation. Uh, We're not going to read it right now, but Genesis 1.26, you'll see that there. And so, in summary, the ancient Israelite worldview, the biblical worldview, uh, believed first that there is only one God, and He is distinct from the world as Creator, but He's also given humanity a unique place as His image bearers. Uh, So, I've got a little diagram. We're going to kind of build this up as we go. Uh, If you're wondering why I put humanity under rather than over the world, uh, it's not because the world is more important than humanity. What I'm trying to do with this diagram is explain how we relate to God. And so, we start with ourselves at the bottom, uh, and then in between God and us is the world, the things that we can hear, see, and touch. Uh, So... Also, heads up, this is not a diagram of the Trinity. Diagram of how God relates to us, because that would be bad. (laughs) Uh, But, leads to the question, if God is so distinct, so separate from creation, how does He interact with the world while still being distinct from it? Um, Or to put it differently, if God is so clearly not a part of this world, how does He do stuff in the world. Now, maybe you are like, I don't know, he just like does stuff. Um, but I think the Bible's actually more careful. Um, think back, uh, first few verses of Genesis, I think they actually give us a clue about how God interacts with the world that he made without becoming part of it. So let's read the first three verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, did you notice that there are actually three things going on in these verses? In verse 1, we're introduced to God who we're told created the heavens and the earth. But then in verse 2, the scene kind of, it zooms in uh, on the earth specifically, and we're told the earth was formless, empty. Um, But at that point, we're introduced to a second kind of an actor, a second kind of character, uh, and that one is called the Spirit of God. And the Spirit isn't 
distant or far off, away from the earth, the Spirit is actually close to the earth, hovering over the waters. But then in verse 3, a third thing happens. God speaks. And it's by speaking, by His Word, that God actually acts and creates. God's words are His actions in the world. So, how does the God who is separate from the world interact with the world? Well, in the first three verses, we're introduced to three little clues. The God who creates, the Spirit who draws near to the earth, and God's Word, His speech, which is His action of creating. Um, And you actually see all three of these drawn together in Psalm 33, 6, which says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath, literally the spirit of his mouth. Um, God doesn't need angels or anything else to interact with the world. He has everything he needs within himself to act and interact with this world that he made while still remaining distinct from it. Um, He doesn't use angels or anything else. He has His Word and His Spirit. Now, we need to be careful about making all these details say more than they actually say. This is not a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity. If all you had was these verses, you would never end up with a complete doctrine of the Trinity. But you'd also never end up with the uh, full Professor Quirrell if all you had was, um, I think the first time they made us in the, um, what's it called? The, the, yeah, no, the, what's the bar called where they go in? Leaky Cauldron. If all you had was that, you wouldn't know. This is like that. Uh, what we're doing is we're looking for clues. Uh, if we didn't know the end of the story, we'd probably miss a lot of these clues. Uh, but we do know the end of the story. We do know who to look for. And so we can appreciate some of these clues. Uh, And these first few verses of Genesis are cluing us into the fact that even from the very beginning, there is a threefold shape to God's interaction with the world. But what I want to do now is actually take some of these little clues and trace how they're developed through the Old Testament. So we're going to start to move up the river of the Bible, panning for gold. As we go, we're going to look for more clues about these three, God, His Word, and His Spirit. Uh, We'll start with God's Spirit, and we're asking what or who is God's Spirit in the Old Testament? Uh, And what we see throughout the Old Testament is that the Spirit is how God becomes present with humanity. The Spirit is how God becomes present to humanity. The Spirit is how God works in humanity humanity. Uh, let me show you one of the first really clear examples of someone, someone being filled with the Spirit. It comes from Exodus 31. And just notice how when God works in someone, He does it by His Spirit. Have a look. Uh, he says, See, I have called uh, by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Now, notice how God gives ability, God gives intelligence, knowledge and craftsmanship through His Spirit. That is how God becomes present with and works in 
people. Uh, here's, a, here's another example from uh, Ezekiel 36. Notice again that when God works in a person and when he changes a heart, he does it by his spirit. Have a look. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh uh, and give you a heart of flesh. I, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How does God change a human heart? He does it by his spirit. Uh, what we're seeing here is that when God interacts with people, he does it by his spirit. Uh, I've got a little table there from Herman Bavink, which summarizes kind of some of what the spirit does in the Old Testament. Uh, you can see that the spirit is how God gives people courage, strength, skills, abilities, intellect, wisdom, holiness and renewal and even prophecy. God works in people through his spirit. But for most of the Old Testament, um, God's spirit only comes to people in a limited or a temporary way. Uh, his spirit is given for a time or for a specific purpose and then often it's taken away again. Uh, temporary, limited. Uh, you can see that with the example of Saul. He has the Spirit for a time, and then it's taken away. It departs from him. But then, come right to the end of the Old Testament, to some of the prophets, and they speak of a time when God's Spirit will be given in a full and a permanent way. He will dwell with His people by His Spirit fully, and forever. Um, you can see that there, Joel uh, 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. But by the end of the Old Testament, we're still waiting for the fulfillment of this promise of a full and a permanent filling of the spirit. But just by way of summary, uh, what we see throughout the Old Testament is that God becomes present with humanity by His Spirit. Uh, and so we've got a little diagram there. God remains distinct from creation and yet becomes present with humanity by His Spirit. So that's God's Spirit. But what about His Word? If God's Spirit is how He becomes present with humanity in a heart... God's Word is how God acts in the world. Uh, we've seen that already, Genesis 1. God acts by speaking. He creates by His Word. Um, but just have a look at Isaiah uh, 55 there, how it describes the Word of God. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, uh, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Uh, did you notice that God actually sends his word out into the world to accomplish things? He acts in the world through his word. Uh, God's word is how he acts in the world. And so have a look at what Timothy Ward says about this. He says, The transcendent God here, in that passage, Isaiah 55, describes His Word as the means by which He acts in the world. 
The language about God's word seems to be a way of speaking about God's active presence in the world. Can you see how God's word is different to his spirit? God's spirit is how he acts within us, subjectively, inside. But God's word is how he works out there in the world, objectively. And God can speak his word to his people, but it's only by the spirit that they can hear his word. And that's how he works in them. So, how does God move a human heart? By his spirit. How does God move a mountain? By his word. Uh, now, there's a lot more we could say here, uh, but for now we're going to add to our little diagram and we're going to show that the transcendent God who is separate from this world acts in this world by his word. That's how he does it. Now, we could stop there and go on to the New Testament, but I think there's actually one more piece to add. It's an important piece and it's about the language of God's Son in the Old Testament, God's son. See, throughout the Old Testament, uh, Israel's kings, they're described as being like God's son. And the king's job was really to function like the presence of God in the world. Uh, God actually rules and reigns on earth through the king of Israel, a human who is described as God's son. Uh, you can see that in Psalm 2 there. It describes how the kings, the rulers of the earth, they rise up against God. But what we see is that God responds by installing his king on Zion. And it's through this human king that he will rule the nations. And this king is described as God's son. Have a look. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them saying... I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, at this point, the king is really just functioning as a representative of God in the world. Kind of like an ambassador or something. But by the time of Isaiah, there is this expectation that this son wouldn't just represent God but would literally be God's presence in the world. Have a look, Isaiah 7. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which is Hebrew for God with us. And so we have this prophecy about this son who would be born and this son's called Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, we'll have a look at Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be a man, a human, called the Son, who will bear the name Mighty God. And through this Son, the Everlasting Father becomes present in the world. And so we can add this son to our little diagram. A human who would actually become God's presence in the world, objectively, out there. The spirit is how God becomes present in his people, but the son is a human who becomes God's presence out there. You can touch him. You can poke him. Uh, and so just notice there, on the little diagram, God works in the world 
both through his word and his son. And in the Old Testament, those are different ideas. But hopefully as we come to the New Testament, we're going to see some things line up together. All right, we're going to take a quick little break, quick discussion question. What do you think about the idea that Christ actually appears in the Old Testament, like as the fourth man in the furnace in Daniel? What do you reckon of that idea? Take a moment, chat with the people around you. What do you reckon? Um, just before we move to the New Testament, let's just quick summary. What we've seen in the biblical worldview is that there is only one God. He's fundamentally distinct from creation, but he's also set humanity apart as unique image bearers. And we asked, how does God interact with the world? And we saw that he becomes present with humanity by his spirit and he acts in the world by his word. But we've also seen this growing expectation of one called the Son, a human who will be God with us, bringing God's presence into the world. But what about the New Testament? Well, when we come to the New Testament, we actually start with the same basic worldview as the Old Testament, about there being one God who's distinct from the world. Uh, but when we get to the New Testament, something significant happens. God be begins to be known by one specific name above all others. Father. I want to show you this from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So this is the passage we re, uh, read together earlier. I'm going to read a little section and then we'll pull a couple of things out. Paul says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. To be sure, although there may be uh, so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Uh, okay, so what's the context for this passage? Context is the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. That was a big deal for the people who lived in Corinth. And we're told that the Corinthians, they thought that it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. And they did that based on two beliefs. Firstly, they knew that idols like Zeus, Artemis, Aphrodite, they don't really exist. Um, they're not gods. Um, but there was also a second belief, which is that there is only one God. Idols don't exist because there's only one God. So you can see that it's that same kind of strong monotheism as the Old Testament. Um, that's what the Corinthians believed. But then have a look at how Paul responds in verse 5, because he does something really interesting. First, he agrees with the Corinthians that idols don't really exist. They are only so-called gods. But then he goes on to clarify what it actually means to believe in one God. He agrees there is only one God. But then he goes on to name this God. And he names this God and identifies him as Father. Father. What's the point? Here's the point. Christians don't simply believe in 
God. We don't even simply believe in one God. Christians believe in God the Father. He is our God. How's this different to the Old Testament? Well, we've actually seen, you can see it in the Old Testament, God is described as Father in the Old Testament. But the difference between that and the New Testament is that God is explicitly named as Father. That is His name. That's who He is. But what does it actually mean for God to be named as Father in the New Testament? Well, what we see time and time again is that God is only named as Father in relation to Jesus Christ. That's what we see at the end of that passage there in 1 Corinthians 8. God is named as Father in relation to Jesus Christ, the Lord. Uh, let me show you with an even clearer verse. Uh, so come in your booklets, Matthew eleven twenty-seven. Jesus says, No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Did you notice that? God the Father is revealed and identified by His Son. Jesus didn't come simply to show us that God is the Creator. He came to show us that, above all, the one God of the Old Testament is to be known as Father. Um, have a look at what 4th century theologian Hilary of Poitiers uh, says about this. Hilary is a guy, by the way. He says, The work which the Lord came to do was not to enable you to recognize the omnipotence of God as creator of all things, but to enable you to know him of, as the father of that son who addresses you. The end and aim of, this, of the revelation of the son is that you should know the father. Remember that the revelation is not of the father manifested as God, but of God manifested as the Father. Jesus came not to show us that the Father is God, but to show us that God is the Father. Which means, what does it mean? It's inadequate for us to simply believe that there is one God. We believe in one God, the Father, who is made known in the God-man, Jesus Christ. So, let me ask you, when you read the word God in the New Testament, who do you think it's talking about? Um, I want to propose that apart from a few exceptions, which we'll come to, uh, that in the New Testament, the word God always refers to the Father. Um, have a look at what Karl Rahner says about the word hotheos. It's a Greek word for God. He says, We maintain that in the New Testament... Hotheos, God, signifies the first person of the Trinity. And this applies to every case in which another meaning of Hotheos does not become clearly evident from the context. Now, he is not saying that Jesus is not God. What he's saying is that when you read the word God, it almost exclusively refers to the Father. God is not an abstract depersonalized deity. He is the Father. But just to take it one step further, I want us to see that the language of Father, it's not just a metaphor. God isn't just 
fatherly, father-like. Um, there are lots of metaphors used of God in the Bible. God's even described as comforting his people like a mother in Isaiah 66. But what do we make of God as father? Is that just a metaphor? Are we just taking an earthly idea and reading that back up into God? It's actually the other way around. Human fatherhood is actually a reflection of who God is. It's almost like human fatherhood is actually a metaphor for who God really is. Uh, you actually see that in the Bible. Ephesians 3. Have a look there. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family, literally fatherhood, in heaven and on earth is named. Did you notice that? Human fatherhood is actually named from God being a father. He isn't a bit like a father. He's not just fatherly. He's not like a father. He is father. And human fathers are simply a pale reflection of the tender warmth of our loving Heavenly Father. That's who He is. Now, our understanding is limited. Our language of Father doesn't communicate everything of what it means for God to be Father. But it's not just a metaphor. God is truly Father. But I also just want to stop there and recognize that father is never a neutral term for us. Father is always an emotional word for us. Uh, some of us will have happy feelings of love, nurture, wisdom, and encouragement. Um, some of us might have anger or deep hurt. Uh, some of us may even have a kind of numbness, um, a space where something should be but isn't. Have a listen to the wise and tender words of Andrew Moody. There is only one true father. The frail and fallen men we call by that name are only echoes and shadows of him. Only God shows us true fatherhood. If our experience of human fatherhood has been disappointing or painful, the very good news is that there is another and better father to whom we can turn. God is not like our father. He is the true father our fathers failed to be. God is father in perfect love, wisdom, tenderness and strength. That is who our God is. And so, just as we move on, modify our little diagram for the Old Testament and we can specify that God is God the Father. But what about Jesus? Isn't he God too? If God is Father, then who is Jesus? After all, it wouldn't be an overstatement to say that the New Testament, in fact the whole Bible, is all about Jesus. Who is he? Well, first I want to show you that Jesus is unashamedly identified as God in the New Testament. Jesus is God and he is nothing less. Uh, I want to really quickly uh, run you through at least four things that prove Jesus is undeniably God. Uh, you'll see the four there in your booklet. First is what I'm calling divine fulfillment. 
See, there are a whole bunch of things that are spoken of and expected of God in the Old Testament. But when it comes to the New Testament, the things spoken of and expected of God are actually applied to Jesus. Uh, One quick example for you. Isaiah 40, Isaiah prophesies that one day God would actually come and dwell with his people. But when we get to the New Testament, we see that prophecy be applied to Jesus in the words of John the Baptist. You can see uh, John 1.23. John said, and he quotes Isaiah 40, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And he's talking about Jesus. The expectation was that God would turn up, but when God turns up, he turns up in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God. He fulfills what is expected of and spoken of God in the Old Testament. Um, But the second thing there is divine action. Jesus does what God does. Uh, You see that first in the miracles. But you might be wondering, miracles? Um, What about all the other people who did miracles in the Bible, like Moses, Elijah? Um, Surely doing miracles doesn't make you God. The difference is, is that whereas other people, like Elijah, they do things by the authority of God... Jesus does things by his own authority. Have you noticed that Jesus never prays for a miracle? He commands them. Uh, You see that there, Mark 4. The wind and the waves obey him. His authority, because his authority is God's authority. But Jesus doesn't just do miracles. We've also seen him forgive sins. We saw that last night. Uh, That's something only God can do, and Jesus does it. But even more than that, Jesus was also active in the creation of the world. We've already seen that in 1 Corinthians 8, where it says all things were made through Jesus. Jesus does what God does, divine action. The third thing is that people often respond to Jesus in the same way that they respond to God. So John 14, uh, Jesus calls us to believe in Him in the same way that we are to believe in God. You even see people worshipping Jesus, something reserved for God alone, especially in a Jewish context. Uh, John 9, you see that. Um, People respond to Jesus as God. Why? Because He is God. Finally, uh, the titles used to describe God in the Bible are actually applied to Jesus. Uh, There are two divine titles I want to draw your attention to, two big ones. The first is Lord. Uh, God's name in the Old Testament, Yahweh, it means I am. Uh, And it's translated as Lord in the New Testament. And Jesus is constantly called Lord throughout the whole New Testament. You can see Luke 5 there, Peter calls Jesus Lord. Now, some people point out, well, the title Lord, it doesn't always refer to Yahweh. Sometimes it can be used as a title of respect, a bit like calling someone Sir or something like that. So how do we know that Jesus is actually being called Lord in the sense of Yahweh? Well, you see at John 8, Jesus calls himself I Am which is an unambiguous reference to Yahweh. He is, I am, Yahweh. But then, 
We also have the times when Jesus is actually named and identified as God. Uh, These are the exceptions that Karl Rahner mentioned before. There are about nine references in the New Testament. Uh, You'll see them there. The clearest is, I think, John 20, where Thomas calls Jesus his Lord and his God. Um, So, there's four reasons why Jesus is undeniably, unashamedly identified as God in the New Testament. Jesus is God. But, but, let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered why Jesus is never explicitly named as God, at least in the way we'd like? Like we'd really love a verse that just said, Jesus is God. It'd be quite handy, wouldn't it? But it doesn't do that. Have you ever wondered why? It only ever calls him God in a slightly qualified kind of a way. Is it because he's not quite as divine as the Father? Here's why. Jesus is never called God next to God the Father. Because if God is the Father, then calling Jesus God as well makes it sound like Jesus is the Father. Can you see that? If they're both called God, then they lose their distinction. And the New Testament never does that. It always distinguishes between them. Jesus is God, but he's not God the Father. We'll explore some more of that tomorrow. Can you see the Bible? It never simply calls Jesus God and leaves it at that. The Bible's actually more careful. It's more nuanced than that. It always names him and identifies him. Think back to 1 Corinthians 8. We read it earlier. There is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so sometimes uh, we think that if we just say that that God is the Father and we prove that Jesus is also God, then that's the doctrine of the Trinity. But if we're actually paying attention to the Bible, we'll see that it's not enough to simply prove that Jesus is God. We also need to ask who Jesus is in relation to God the Father. So who is Jesus in relation to the Father? And I think we're given two main descriptions of Jesus in relation to the Father. Jesus is called lots of things. Uh, He's called King. He's called Christ. But there are two big things that he's called in relation to the Father. He's the Word of God and he's the Son of God. Word and Son. You see the language of Word introduced in John chapter 1? John starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Can you see what John's doing here? He starts by restating the first verse of the Bible. He says, in the beginning. He's retelling the story of creation. But what he's doing, he's giving us a different camera angle on creation. We're going to see behind the scenes. And what he tells us is that before creation, before there was anything else, there was something with God. The Word was with God. Remember back to Genesis 1, God created all things through His Word. But now that Word is identified 
the word is a he. It's there in verse 2. He was with God. But the word isn't something other than God. It's not God plus. The word was God. Can you see there's both distinction and unity? The word was with God. There's distinction. And the word was God. There's unity. And this word who was with God in the beginning, is actually named later in that passage as Jesus Christ. And everything true of God's word in the Old Testament is true of Jesus. He is how God interacts with the world. When God speaks his word into the world, he speaks Jesus Christ into the world in the form of human flesh. Uh, Jesus doesn't become the word of God. The Word became flesh. And we'll think more about that in talk four. So who is Jesus in relation to God? He is the Word of God. But he's not just described as the Word, he's also described as the Son. Do you remember the language of Word and Son in the Old Testament? We actually see them come together in Jesus. Uh, Have a look at how John puts them together in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Son. But what does it mean for him to be the Son? So remember back in the Old Testament, there were a bunch of people called God's Son in the Old Testament. David was called God's Son in Psalm 2. Uh, The language of God's Son was almost like a title, like an office, you know, like doctor, principal, God's Son. Um, Is Jesus just another king like David, or is Jesus unique in some way? Does something set him apart as God's son? And I think John actually gives us a hint in that verse we just read. Did you notice that Jesus is described as the only son of the Father? When he says this, John's saying that Jesus is uniquely God's son. He is God's only son. But why is he unique as God's son. Why is he different from all the rest? I think there's another hint in that same verse. He is from the Father. That's big. That's significant. Jesus doesn't become the son of the Father. He is sent from the Father. David became God's son when he became the king. Jesus doesn't become God's son. He is God's son and he comes from the Father. Which implies that actually Jesus was the son of God before creation. Before there was anything else, God had a son. Before he had a creation, he had a son. You see that John 17, Jesus prays like this. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Before the creation of the world, there was a father and a son, and they loved each other. And when Jesus relates to God as father, he's, he's, he's not doing something new. He's doing something he's been doing since all eternity. And he's doing in creation what he was doing before creation, loving his father. Jesus is undeniably, unashamedly God. 
but Jesus isn't the Father. And the thing that distinguishes them is their relationship. The Father relates to the Son as a Father, and the Son relates to the Father as a Son. But just before we move on to the Spirit, think back to the Old Testament. Who was the Son? What did the Son do? He was God's presence in the world. He was the presence of God in the world. And that's true of Jesus. Jesus is how God becomes present in the world. Do you remember that fundamental distinction between God and creation? We have no direct access to God. So how does he make himself known in this world? His son. He makes himself known in his son. Colossians 1. The son is the image of the invisible God. God's invisible. We can't see him, but we can see his son. He makes the invisible God visible. And so we can add a few little modifications to our little diagram Jesus is both the Word and the Son of God. He's sent from God the Father to become a man so that he might become God's presence in the world. And notice how the language of Word and Son comes together in Jesus. But you might be wondering, which is it? Is he the Word or is he the Son? Um, Have a look at what Scott Swain says. We are tempted to ask, which is it? Is the relation between the first and second persons of the Trinity more like a relation between two distinct agents, i.e. a father and a son, or more like a relation that is internal to one agent, i.e. a man and his own wisdom or word? The answer is both and neither. While social analogies, like father and son, highlight real personal distinction that exists between the first and second persons of the Trinity, psychological analogies, like word, highlight their indivisible and inseparable oneness. There is a real personal distinction between Jesus and the Father, but there's also an indivisible, inseparable oneness. But what about the Spirit? Remember back to Genesis 1, there were three names, God, His Word, and His Spirit. Where do we see the Spirit in the New Testament? The first thing to say is that, uh, just like Jesus, the Spirit is also identified as God. He's actually named as Lord in 2 Corinthians 3.17. The Lord is the Spirit. Uh, But I think one of the clearest examples of the Spirit's divinity actually comes from Acts chapter 5. So, Acts chapter 5, you've got Ananias and Sapphira. They're a couple. They sell uh, uh, some of their property, and then they lie to the apostles, and they say that they've given all their money, but they actually hadn't. They only gave a bit. Um, Now, just to be clear, they didn't have to give all their money to the church. The problem is what uh, they lied. They said they did, but they didn't. Anyway... Have a look at how Peter responds, because it's significant. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Did you notice that? To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God, because the Spirit is God. The Spirit is equated with God. Uh, But more than that, the Spirit is not just an impersonal force or a power. It's not like the force in Star Wars. The Spirit is actually identified as an agent who acts. 
The Spirit does things. Have a look, Acts chapter 8, the Spirit speaks to Philip. The Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Spirit is an active agent, just as much as the Father and the Son are. But who is the Spirit? First and foremost, the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus is never without the Spirit. Um, Have a look at what John Owen said about the Spirit. By the Spirit was He, Jesus, guided, directed, comforted, supported in the whole course of His ministry, temptations, obedience and sufferings. Uh, You see an example there, Luke 4, Jesus is both full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit. Um, But the Spirit isn't just with Jesus at every step. Jesus also promises that the Spirit will come and dwell with us. Have a look, John 14. He says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Did you notice that? The Spirit dwells with us and will be in us. We see that Acts chapter 2. The Spirit is poured out on God's people in fulfillment of that prophecy in Joel 2. What's the point? Just like in the Old Testament, the Spirit is how God becomes present with His people. With us, in us. Not in a temporary or limited way. He doesn't just dwell with us, He dwells in us. But how does the Spirit relate to the Father? I think we're actually given a little hint, John 15. We'll come back to this tomorrow. Um, It says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Um, Did you notice that? The Spirit proceeds from the Father. What does that mean? We'll come back to that tomorrow. But just before we wrap things up, we can add one little final thing to our diagram. The Spirit is revealed in the New Testament not as an impersonal force, not as a power, but as an active agent along with the Father and the Son. He is God, but He is distinguished from the Father and Son. And the Spirit is how God becomes present with us. Jesus, He's out there. He's in the world. He's now at the Father's right hand. But the Spirit is here in me and in you, if your trust is in Christ. Um, Just as we close, we actually see these three named together in Matthew 28. It says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Notice it doesn't say names, it just says name. There's one name three times over. Each of them are God, but they're also distinct from each other. And they're distinguished by the relations between them as Father and Son and Spirit. So, is the Trinity biblical? Let me answer that question by leaving you with the three statements that I think summarize, capture everything we've seen in this talk. Number one, the doctrine of the Trinity affirms the existence of one God. Two, the doctrine of the Trinity identifies the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with the one God. But three, the doctrine of the Trinity distinguishes the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by the relations between them. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank and we praise you for revealing yourself in your Son, whom you have loved since before the creation of the world. Father, we thank and praise you that you are present with us now by your Spirit, even now as we hear your Word. And Father, we long to know you as our Father, by your Son, through your Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.